Blog Talk Radio. National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and a special welcome to the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged on as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog, Talk Radio. Well, tonight's show is a conversation with Southern historian Dr. Orville Burton. Orville Vernon Burton is Creativity Professor of Humanities, Professor of History, Pan-African Studies, Sociology and Computer Science at Clemson University, and the director of the Clemson Cyber Institute. He is a prolific author and scholar. Over 20 authored or edited books and and more than 200 articles. The Age of Lincoln won the Chicago Tribune for Heartland Literary Award for Nonfiction and was selected for the Book of the Month Club, History Book Club, and Military Book Club. One reviewer proclaimed, if the Civil War era was America's Iliad, then historian Orville Vernon Burton is our latest homer. The book was featured at sessions of the annual meetings of African American History and Life Association, the Social Science History Association, the Southern Intellectual History Circle, and the latter was the basis for a forum published in the Journal of the Historical Society. His In My Father's House Are Many Mansions, Family and Community in Edgeville, South Carolina, was featured at the Southern Historical Association and the Southern Science History Association annual meetings. The Age of Lincoln and In My Father's House were nominated for Pulitzers. And his most recent book is Penn Center, A History Preserve. Dr. Burton's research and teaching interests include the American South, especially race relations and community, and the intersection of humanities and social sciences. And I just want to add that Dr. Burton wrote the foreword for Our Ancestors, Our Stories, authored by historian Harris Bailey and family historians Ethel Daly, Ellen LaVon Burton, Vincent Shepard, and yours truly, Bernice Bennett. So let me give a warm welcome to Dr. Burton to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Dr. Burton. Thank you so much. It's a real honor to be here with you. It is a real honor to have you on this show. You know, I was first introduced to you, Dr. Burton, in 2004 when I discovered that my ancestors 
had roots in Edgefield County, South Carolina. And my introduction came through your book, In My Father's House Are Many Mansions. So I just want to thank you for writing that book because it certainly put in context where my ancestors came from. So since I know where you're from, which is 96 South Carolina, Please share with us how did your experiences in 96 impact your development as a historian? Well, I I am not certain exactly how growing up influenced me to be a historian. I had no intention to be a historian, but growing up in a small southern town, uh, and an essay I just wrote uh, about becoming uh, a Southern historian uh, in the segregated South, uh, I was uh, separated only by a non-segregated cow pasture from my best friend growing up who was an African-American. And so I grew up, I think, fascinated and part of the sort of segregated South and the issues of race relations. And as someone who took my faith seriously, wanting to understand how particularly whites who I admired as good people could have the views that they had and and professed about segregation at that time. So my interest was spurred there, but I really didn't think of myself in any ways of being involved as a historian that came later. I do think delivering newspapers, I had a early morning paper out from the time I was 9 to 18, uh, got up every morning. There were two major newspapers, one the Greenville News, which I delivered, the other the Anderson Independent with the morning papers. And uh, as I would roll the newspaper, you would roll them and then you'd ride your bike and throw them onto the porch. I put the two newspapers beside each other, and as I would read them, I would see the contrasting points of view about the same issues, one being the Republican paper, the other being the Democratic paper. And I do think that helped prepare me to be a historian, that is, to interpret uh, and see how the same what seem to be facts can be interpreted very differently depending on the perspective you bring to it. Well, it's very interesting that you are you're saying what you're saying. You're interpreting and then you're seeing the facts. And, you know, we see that right now. We, we see the facts, but they get interpreted very different ways. And so it's, it's just really interesting just to, to hear you say that. So you grew up in 96 South Carolina. So how did you end up becoming a Lincoln Scholar? Well, the, the Lincoln thing grew out of my interest in the American South. I actually uh, taught the American South at the University of Illinois for 34 years. Uh, and then I, the age of Lincoln did very well. I took early retirement. I moved back home to South Carolina. Now, in Illinois, Lincoln was beloved. Everyone liked the book. But when I moved back home, literally to 96 South Carolina, I discovered that a lot of people down here, particularly white, do not care very much for Lincoln. So that was uh, uh, of interest to me. It was not that way when I left the South. I think the culture wars have had a horrible conflict. We had a bookmobile that came to 96. Many of your uh, listeners probably don't know what a bookmobile is, but we didn't have a library. And so they had a van that carried books to places like 96, and you could check out books. And that's what I did. And I had read almost all the books in the bookmobile. And uh, there were a number of biographies. And the two people that I really liked the most were Jesse James and Abraham Lincoln. Now, the more I read and studied, the more I discovered that Jesse James was not a very nice person. In fact, that while I had thought both he and Abraham Lincoln loved their mothers and uh, helped the poor, I discovered that Jesse James was basically a bandit and a former Confederate and slave owner who really didn't care about anything but himself and killing uh, what he considered uh, Yankees, Uh, whereas the more I studied Abraham Lincoln, the more I came to really, really appreciate him and his greatness. And I don't say that 
lightly about people because usually the more you study an individual's history, we all have our demons and our faults, uh, and, and we may come to understand them, but maybe not admire them as much. But I really did come to admire Abraham Lincoln and continue to admire him. The only other person that's really happened to me about that I've studied is Dr. Benjamin E. Mays, also from my hometown, and who I wrote the foreword to his book, Born to Rebel. He was the longtime president of Morehouse College uh, and uh, was a mentor to many, many um, African-American men at Morehouse, including just one of many, Martin Luther King, Jr., and he's often considered the spiritual godfather of the uh, um, civil rights movement, uh, and as well as he was certainly one of the three greatest theologians of the uh, 20th century. Uh, but those two men, uh, Benjamin Mays and Abraham Lincoln, I've come to admire tremendously, uh, not that they didn't have their demons. And Lincoln may have had more than his share of demons, but how he dealt with those demons, I think, added to his greatness, his compassion, his ability to try to walk in other people's shoes and to understand other perspectives. Now, you know, given what you've just said, I know that you've had several very strong mentors in your life, Civil War historian Sheldon uh, Hackney and James MacPherson. Uh, they were your Ph.D. thesis advisors. And then the Southern historian uh, C.B. Woodward were your mentors. So how did they shape your approach to researching and writing history? Well, they, they had a tremendous influence on me. It was when I was uh, at Yale for a summer uh, as an undergraduate when I was at Furman on a special program called the Harvard-Yale Columbia Intensive Summer Studies Program that I read C. Van Woodward's uh, great biography, Tom Watson, Agrarian Rebel. And that was the first time I'd really read history and saw the power of history, how history is important, how history uh, has to be understood, and that history can be used for good, that is to help shape and make things better. Uh, so Woodward tremendously uh, influenced me that way, and both Sheldon Hackney and James McPherson were Woodward students, and they specialized both in the Civil War, Reconstruction, and the American South, and in race relations. And I had the best of both worlds. Uh, Jim McPherson kept working on Civil War and Reconstruction era, 19th century America, till he got it right as close as I think a historian can get to the truth uh, in his research. It was sort of like the the hedgehog and the, and the fox of burying in, whereas Sheldon Hackney was all over the place, full of ideas. He later went on to be, he didn't do as much scholarship as he wished he could because he went on to be president of Tulane, then the University of Pennsylvania. He was, in fact, head of the National Endowment for the Humanities, uh, but he was full of ideas. And I got the best of both worlds, I think, in learning from these two master historians. Uh, both of them were great writers, uh, and they helped me learn to write, uh, as well as, I think, great thinkers. So I, I really did have a wonderful experience in graduate school and continue to have a great relationship with, uh, with Jim McPherson. But Sheldon Hackney passed away a few years ago. I actually edited Thesrips, that is, books in both of their honors for each one of them, and I feel good about it. There's no way to ever repay the debt that I have as a student to those two extremely wonderful men and great historians. Right. So you mentioned, though, the truth. So how do you get to the truth? Because you can read some history books, and you, you already mentioned interpretation. So how do you get to the truth of what really are the facts? versus yeah. how well, the not... facts have been turned around. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, this idea of alternative facts we've just been dealing with is not something new. People can say what they want. Uh, we as historians are trained that is differently than other social scientists who just generate with large data. We look at the specific cases, and we put it into its context. Uh, and we understand that all information is biased, even what we think of as first-hand accounts 
are seen through a certain lens and certain ways. You have to work with that ambiguity to unpeel these things, to look for corroborating evidence and what we think of as other facts and the worldview of how you understand things work and the logic of them to put together the best approximation to the truth as we can come. But ultimately, we need to understand that almost everything is an interpretation. Good point. Almost everything is an interpretation. So I want to take you back to uh, something I mentioned earlier, and that's in my father's house of many mansions. So why is Edgeville so important in, let's say, South Carolina, as well as the United States history? Tell us your interpretation of what, what's, what was going on in Edgeville that's significant to all of us. Well, I think uh, there are so many leaders that have come out of there, and people have noted that. But I think the demography uh, explains a lot of it. It's sort of midway between the low country and the up country. There was no uh, designations like that at the time, but what people today would think at the Midlands to the up country. And it sort of have, has aspects of it all. Statistically, I was able to show that Edgefield sort of approximates if you would look at what was a typical South Carolina, but particularly it is around the fall lines. That is where as far you could go up a river navigating the Savannah River. And at that point, you know, buffalo, deer, the Native Americans all crossed there and people continued. So it became a funnel of a place that people went through as they went out to the west in general. That's why so many people come out of Edgefield was also a good compromise place for a leader to come from. That is, not all the way from the upcountry, not all the way from the low country. So you have a lot of governors, particularly that Edgefield is proud of, a number of governors who came out of that area. Uh, there was a, a bar there that is a, a, a it was a thriving legal uh, area, courthouse town. And, and because of that, a lot of people are coming there to study law. I think that's significant. It had the longest-running newspaper, continuous-running newspaper, uh, which is attractive for historians to look beyond to to get uh, information. And because of so many leaders, a lot of manuscripts for historians to work with. But particularly significant, I think, uh, the Civil War governor, Francis Pickens, when the Civil War is from Edgefield, and then probably one of the most influential uh, South Carolinians of all time, Benjamin Ryan Tillman, Governor Tillman, and a long-term senator from the U.S. from South Carolina, Ben Tillman, who uh, is both uh, for years meant different things to different groups of people. A good idea about a fact. You have the fact. There was this governor. He was probably one of the more progressive governors in the sense of doing things like establishing schools are getting more equal representation for whites. But for African Americans, he was the prototype of the racial demagogue who, in fact, engineered the disfranchising and segregation constitution of 1896 that brings about the Jim Crow, and he's usually pointed to as the epitome of the racial demagogues that others follow him afterwards. So there's someone who needs different things. Uh, and then you have Strom Thurmond from Edgefield as well, who for a long time was a dominant politician in the state of South Carolina who had national influence, as did Tillman. So there's wow. a long okay. idea of an Edgefield tradition. There's also many people argue that Edgefield was particularly violent. I actually argue that it's, it's, uh, it's no more violent than other areas of South Carolina, but it got this reputation of violence, uh, that in fact the American South itself was violent, that that is because of slavery. You could not have had slavery without having either violence or the threat of violence all the time. People had to be made to be enslaved, and that was only done through either violence or the threat of violence. And I think that affected Southern culture in ways that we still see today. in terms of how people act, what they do, uh, is part of a cultural thing that affected both 
blacks and whites in the South. But I, I, I would argue that while there is a lot of violence in Edgefield, there's also a lot of violence in Abbeville. There's also a lot of violence in other parts of South Carolina. Right. And so with this violence, though, you as you mentioned, the culture, even to this day when you attend maybe a conference, you'll see the reenactment of the violence that has taken place in, in Edgefield, South Carolina. Uh, there's a comment that's stating that violence was used to encourage submission. That's absolutely and this is correct. Uh, but but it could not have slave people don't understand that slavery was based upon violence and a culture of violence. People, I mean, there was always the threat of violence there. And what does that do to people who grow up in a culture of Violence. Now, the United States also had a violent culture in the West and all, but that's different than the social and economic and, I would say, political institution of slavery, which was in the American South. Yes, yes. Uh, Now, there's another comment that slavery fueled violence. Uh, But, I mean, the violence was used as another comment – was posted to encourage submission. And it is something that no matter what, we saw the lashes. We understood that people were chained, that children were taken away from their mothers. There was just a lot of things going on in, while people were enslaved, even to the point where some people have even argued that they had good slave owners. And so how can you have a good slave owner if that person is owning someone else? It it doesn't make sense to me. No, and there are power relations throughout with that. It's not just violence, but the the, the society is stratified so that a slave owner has power. So even if someone would say someone is a good slave owner, that's in the context of that person having all sorts of power to affect your lives in ways. Uh, even, even quote, good slave owners, when it came to critical uh, uh, economic times, would, in fact, sell African Americans if they had to. I mean, if they felt that they needed to, even if they didn't like it. So you have that situation. Uh, in a power-dominated society with the ability of one person to sell another person as property. That's right. And it's it's all about money. I mean, we can't can't talk about slavery without talking about the the economics and the fact that... I think you're right, but I think it's more than that. I actually think that whether was part of it initially or not, developed out of this justification for slavery comes the idea of white supremacy that has plagued our country uh, even to this day, I would say. Yes, I I would agree. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come right back. Just a quick break.
Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Now, you have been listening to Dr. Orville Vernon Burton, and we have just uh, we've just been talking about power and and violence and, and what was going on in the American South and slavery. And so, Dr. Burton, I want to just continue to talk about history by having you share with us the significance of the Penn Center in Southern history. And tell everyone what the Penn Center is. Penn Center is a remarkable a remarkable place even today. Uh, Pins with uh, a lot of people are unaware actually that uh, very early in the Civil War, 1861, Union forces took uh, the area that is around Hilton Head now, where the Marine base is, and those sea islands there, and uh, and the Confederate so the Confederates who lived there, rather the white Southerners left. Many of them tried to take their enslaved people with them, but many refused to go. And there were at least about 10,000 left on St. Helena Island. And uh, I really admire the extraordinary idealism of the men and women then who came down by boat around Charleston and into that harbor and founded a school at Penn Center. Uh, it is a remarkable place, and it still exists today. The school was to educate African Americans, and also there was some religious uh, motivation as well. But women like Laura Towns spent their whole life there uh, as she came down uh, and built the school. And the school went uh, through Reconstruction. The great Civil War hero Robert Smalls is involved. Do people know who Robert Smalls is? Bernice, should I talk about him some? Why don't you talk about him? Okay. Well, Robert Smalls was, in fact, uh, again, one of my favorite heroes. I had actually planned to do my dissertation on him. I had written uh, about a 100-page research paper for Dr. James McPherson in a graduate class. He encouraged me to do it, but a little biography came out at that time, and then there was a whole debate on whether white scholars like myself should be doing black history or not, and I got caught up in all of that, trying to weigh it out, and then I went off and did the Edgefield study. But Robert Smalls has always fascinated me. He, in fact, worked on a vessel, uh, a ship called the Planter, and it was in Charleston Harbor, and he got his men and his wife and his child on that boat. He sailed it out of Charleston Harbor, right past Fort Sumter and where the Confederates were, he mimicked. He was a great sailor. He knew the, all, of the, all of the ways in and out of harbors, and he sailed it by mimicking the captain's um, mannerisms and brought it out and gave it to the Union. And then he served on that ship as part of the Union uh, force and saved it again when a young lieutenant under fire by Confederates was going to surrender you know, Cat Smalls locked him away, took it, and saved the ship again. And he became a great hero in the North. They toured him around as an example of, look, let African Americans serve uh, in the Army and the navies to fight for the Union. Uh, and it's very interesting, too. We talked about the power relationships in slavery. Smalls was in, the, in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, and it was the first time he encountered segregation. He was kicked off a streetcar. But the other thing about slavery is you've got to have contact if you're going to make people be enslaved, so black and white interacted. So his first 
introduction to segregation was in the North. Uh, he he's this great war hero. He's absolutely hated by uh, by particularly South Carolinians and the Confederacy. They take him to meet with Abraham Lincoln, uh, and Lincoln is just uh, fascinated with him. And he asks him. He they says to him, "Why would you risk your life and your wife and your children's to sail out of the harbor? He would have been executed if he'd have been caught." And Smalls gave him a one-word reply. He said, freedom. And that's exactly what Lincoln echoed a year later in the Gettysburg Address, where he calls for a new birth of freedom. Smalls becomes a Reconstruction leader. He is the person who introduces in the South Carolina Constitutional Convention in 1867 for the 1868 um, uh, Constitution public education. Uh, before the Civil War, there was not public education for whites, and of course not for enslaved people, but Smalls introduced it for blacks and whites, and he gets involved with Penn Center as well, as does his daughter. Uh, he pays a tutor to learn to read and write. He buys his former master's home. Uh, he even supports his master's widow, the white woman uh, who had who had owned him, uh, after the war, and he continues. He gets elected to Congress, not just in the state lectures, but Congress several times. He finally dies in 1915, but during Reconstruction, there was a story I found in the newspapers where one African-American says to another, Robert Smalls is the greatest man who's ever lived. And the other replies to him, well, what about Jesus Christ? At which point the other African-American replied, yes, but Smalls is young yet. And that gives you an idea of how he was so celebrated. Uh, he fought disfranchisement. He was actually at the 1895-96 uh, disfranchising convention and argued against disfranchising uh, there and stood his ground. So a great, great character who's coming out of Buford. And what's interesting about Reconstruction is in at the uh, centennial of the Civil War, 1965, C. Van Woodward remarked, there had never been a call for a commemoration of Reconstruction. And I repeated that call for what in 2005. And now in his last days in office, President Obama has, in fact, made Penn Center, certain areas of Buford, the first Reconstruction uh, national monument. And on not this Saturday, but the 18th, there is going to be the kickoff or the beginning of the National Reconstruction Monument Park at Penn Center on Saturday afternoon, March the 18th. So it brings us full circle. Now, we sometimes call, or it has been called, the Civil Rights Movement, the Second Reconstruction, because Penn Center was isolated off as the second island past Buford uh, going out toward the ocean. It was a place where blacks and whites could meet in the segregated South. And a lot of liberal whites would come there to, to plan strategy to oppose segregation. And Martin Luther King Jr. started coming there with a South Carolina Leadership Conference to become a retreat and a place. And there's actually a building where he stayed and spent the night over and over again. And he liked it so much that they built a house for him. It's called the King Cottage. It'd have a place. It was a place where he really relaxed. He would sing songs with Joan Baez. I have some wonderful pictures uh, that the King family doesn't own uh, of King just having a wonderful time there uh, in the book that I, I wrote uh, called Penn Center History Preserved. So it's also part of that civil rights movement legacy as well, and it's still there today as a community center working for people. I encourage people to visit. they got a wonderful museum, and now most of the time, when I encourage people to buy my books, I tell them that they can take it off their taxes because all proceeds go to gifted children. And I will argue with the IRS that my grandchildren are the most gifted children in the world. But in the case of Penn Center, all the royalties, I gave everything goes to Penn Center. So you're actually helping Penn Center as well and this commemoration of Reconstruction with the book. But uh, even though I wrote it, I highly recommend it to get the whole continuing story its relationship with Africa, the development of Gullah and the Gullah culture that's there. All of this is just a rich, rich history. And as I tried to argue in the Penn Center book, it's the story of America 
from a different perspective or a different interpretation than we're used to from the perspective of African Americans, how American history looked from Buford, St. Helena Island uh, at that time. Well, you just made a, a really good point. It's a story about American from the African American perspective. I mean, I've seen the pictures in the book, and uh, it's it's just a, a wonderful book to read and to understand just what was going on. And so, for those of you that are interested in in obtaining this book, it is on Amazon, and I hope that you all will get it. Uh, remember, the proceeds from the book will go back to the Penn Center. Now, with the National Reconstruction Monument on, on March 18th, is there a full program, a website we should go to to find out more about the um, this event? I don't know. I believe the National Park Service did a release. That's how I found out about it. And I hope to be there. I, I want to be there. I believe it starts the afternoon, like at 1 p.m., that's my memory, but I haven't seen a program or anything yet. Right. right. In fact, there's a, a recommendation that. Please go ahead. I was just I was just going to say that uh, I've talked with some people, and one of the things they want to do is the first time the Emancipation Proclamation was read in the South, it was read there to assembled African Americans, and it's a great story. One of the former slave owners who had started out as a pro-slavery theorist. He was a preacher. He was writing tracts saying that the Bible justified slavery, and he got into a dialogue with abolitionist writers who were writing that slavery was a sin, and he became convinced that he was wrong. I think this is a, a good example of learning, of growing, and he, in fact, then uh, sells his enslaved people. This is a, a man who no longer believes in slaves, moves north and then decides that that was the wrong thing he does. He takes all the money he has bought and goes back and buys every single enslaved person that he had sold from his plantation on and frees them, except he can't find one person. So he come, they bring him back at this time to read the Emancipation Proclamation. And there in the crowd, was the one person that he had not freed. He had freed himself and run away and joined the Union Army. So it's one of these great stories. That's Reverend Brisbane, and they're going to have uh, part of the ceremony is the reading of the Emancipation Proclamation. He also goes on to be uh, a, a, a local sort of a county commissioner, and he's one of the reasons that African Americans got their land there. He ruled in favor of African Americans as opposed to how uh, all the land was sort of taken away from African Americans and other places and things. So it shows you that politics matters and who's in power and who's in charge in this judgeship things. He was appointed by, by Lincoln through Stanton. Yes. And just listening to, to what you just said, how, uh, how, how have you utilized genealogy in your historical research and how can genealogists use history and their historical research? Well, my first book was basically a mass genealogy, and that's how I, I got into this. Uh, at, at the time, uh, way back when I was in graduate school at Princeton, historians were debating just, uh, you know, was slavery really involved? How many people owned slaves? We really didn't know that. And I realized that was all in the decennial censuses but in different censuses. But if you match them up, that is, take the population census of 1850 and the enslaved people census of 1850, you could leave and see who was a person who owned slaves or didn't, or families, and you could trace them from 1850 to 1860 to see if, in fact, people who did not own slaves became slave owners or the children of people inherited slaves. You could do the same thing with the agricultural census, the mortality census, and link them up. So my study of Edgefield really began in some ways as a mass genealogy just to look at simple questions of structure. How was Southern society structured? Did, in fact, a white tenant farmer before the Civil War move up in society or not? What were the ideas of mobility? Did people stay in the same place or did they leave? 
So that's how I use mass genealogy. And then with that, I use history, finding family histories, oral histories, histories in Bibles, and reading the newspapers critically. You know, sometimes White would write what they would think would be a funny story about African Americans, but you could read that story very, very differently. I can give you an excellent example about uh, a a former um, a, a beloved African American had died. This was during Reconstruction. I remember in 1872 in Edgefield, and they were having a service, and an African American nephew of his was a minister was preaching about him, and the white uh, newspaper editor went to hear uh, to the service out of respect for this African-American man. And he talked about how the, this African-American used to tell them wonderful stories to blacks and whites. And so then the minister told the story, too, about how, in fact, uh, his uncle had indeed told stories to blacks and whites. But he also told uh, black children some different stories. And he told whites when he talked about the creation of the world, that when God created uh, Adam and Eve, he created them own, in their own image. He created them black, which then says that God is black. And then when they sinned, God called them, and they were so afraid that they, they, they blanched out and turned white and that their hair straightened so that it was not, you know, uh, sort of traditional African-American hair. And it goes on like that, at which point you can see the theological significance there saying that we are good people. We are creating God's image. Sin is what made white people. So that's a good example of uh, using the same facts and hearing the same story, but reading as a historian critically to see how it is used and can be used for African Americans in creating their own culture and their own mechanisms to survive the negative stereotypes that whites were always so eager to put upon them. Yes, yes, absolutely. So let's uh, just continue just talking and Talk about your involvement as an expert witness for both Texas and South Carolina photo voting ID. And how has being an expert, uh, what did that entail? And just share with us, just talk about that experience. Well, this goes back to the 1980s. There was a... a and, and voting rights in particular, but also some discrimination cases. For instance, I was an expert witness uh, for the Alfred uh, Woodfox case that finally, uh, he's finally out of jail, but he'd been in Angola prison in solitary confinement since 1972, and that dealt with other kind of issues. But most of my work has been as an expert witness for minority plaintiffs in voting rights and discrimination cases. And this came about because of a court case in 1980 that was uh, Mobile versus Bolden, where, in fact, the, the, uh, it was clearly proved that at-large elections discriminated against African Americans in elections in Mobile uh, because they were not able to ever elect anyone to city council or school board. But the judge ruled it didn't matter if a law discriminated or if a law had unequal um, uh, results between blacks and whites, but it had to be shown that it was purposeful, that it was discriminatory by intent. And so then civil rights lawyers realized that historians are trained to do intent. So that's when they reached out uh, to historians like me, who I had done some voter registration and things. I don't want to make out like I was part of the civil rights movement. I was really a little too young, just came in at the tail end, uh, you know, after I'd gone to Furman in 1965 of doing some things. Uh, and that's how I got involved, uh, showing the intent and purpose. And that's an issue that's still alive today, as with the Texas voter ID case. So I was the expert witness against the uh, South Carolina, and there I worked for the League of Women Voters. Uh, and I felt very good that the Justice Department, the first time I've ever seen it, cited my report as to why they objected to the South Carolina voter ID law. That uh, Then they contested and went to court. 
and I was also the expert witness for the NACP Legal Defense Fund in the Texas photo voter ID case. And there, the judge who ruled in our favor, that is against the Texas photo voter ID law, cited my report explaining why it had unequal effect and uh, and also how, in fact, uh, that there was intent and purpose behind uh, the law to make it less likely uh, or to to more affect African Americans and Latinos to keep them from having an equal opportunity uh, to vote and particularly to vote for cancer choice, but that is to register vote. It really went back, as I've argued, like the old poll taxes as opposed to the latter-day court cases, which were about vote dilution. This was about keeping people from voting, like the poll taxes and the literacy laws that the Voting Rights Act was first uh, instituted for, first came about. Right, and and it looks like just as you're talking about 1980s and voter ID, I mean, it came up again. It's something that just continues to come back and come back just to prevent people uh, from voting, as you talked about, intent and purpose. So yeah, it in is fact, one uh, of the interesting thing. One of the interesting things about the Texas uh, case is I was deposed, and the Republican uh, Attorney General who was deposing me kept trying to point out, well, weren't all these laws passed by Democrats? You know, in the 1960s and 50s. And, yes, it was a Democrat. So, so as I said on the stand, it did not matter if it was a Republican in power as today or it was a Democratic Party before that or it could be a Martian. It doesn't matter. Every single law that was passed to dilute or to stop African Americans from having an equal opportunity in electing cast their choice was always done by the power by the party in power, and it didn't really matter if it was Republican or Democrat, which sort of puts it in a new light, as you understand, that it's about political power and who has it and how they're trying to keep maintaining it by keeping others from voting. Right, and it is something to to keep in, in mind that it is the the political party that's in power at that particular time. So we're moving on in this discussion, and I'm just happy that you're sharing your thoughts with us. But let's just talk about for a moment of the authors and becoming Southern writers. Which would you recommend for genealogists who are working on their family histories? Well, I think they're all worthwhile. They all go in different directions. I'm, of course, partial to my own essay. I edited this uh, this volume uh, uh, in honor of my friend Charles Joyner, who we just lost this past year in 2016, uh, a great historian of, of, of slavery itself. The institution is down by the riverside. It's a classic work of slavery. He sort of worked on slavery in the low country, and I worked on it. In the upcountry within my father's house are, are many mansions. Uh, and uh, there's so many. I particularly like uh, Val Littlefields. She's director of African-American studies at the University of South Carolina. Her essay, I think, would be very good for genealogists to look at, as well as her husband's, Dan Littlefield, who is the colonial era historian who first introduced the idea of ethnicity or one of the first people, and the importance of different ethnic groups among Africans coming to particularly South Carolina, and what that meant is they brought about certain skills and people wanted to hire certain ethnicities. You know, I don't have to tell you, Bernice, that Africa is not a country like the United States. It's, it's a continent, and you had not only uh, nations, different nations within Africa, but you had a whole bunch of different ethnicities uh, there, and certain people specialized in different things and were brought and wanted to be bought for those particular ideas. The one we we recognize the most is rice cultivation, which many African Americans were familiar with and made it possible 
uh, in South Carolina when the rice economy took off. Right. Now, I'm looking at, I I have certain books, too, and I'm looking at From Slavery to Freedom by John Hope Franklin and Alfred A. Moss. I mean, this is a book that I'll just sit down and just read and read and read. And uh, another book that I've been going back over, uh, Free at Last, uh, Ira Berlin and and several other uh, writers. And so, as as many opportunities as peop as people have, they should at least explore some of the historical uh books that are out there to get a better idea of what was going on historically so let's talk and I'll about tell you an interesting story. Go ahead. john hope yeah. John Hope Franklin was a very dear friend of mine, and he told me that he wrote the first the first volume of the it's gone through many, many iterations and revised editions. But after slavery, he literally, not after slavery, uh, what's the title? From slavery. From slavery From to slavery freedom. From slavery to freedom, mm-hmm. yes. From slavery to freedom, he wrote that with a notepad in his lap because he was doing, it shows you how different historians work. You know, he at that time didn't have much money or a desk to work at or a place. And so he wrote that book in his lap, basically, uh, that, you know, it's gone through, it's become, you know, it really sort of in some ways set about the modern study of African-American history. And I agree with you, and all genealogists should know about the Freedmen's Project, University of Maryland, that Ira Berlin used to direct and founded, and now his longtime collaborator, Leslie Rowland, directs at the University of Maryland. It's just a wonderful project. And as it's just a trove of information for genealogists and historians. Incredible work from uh, all the records that are collected there. Right. And you mentioned uh, Dr. Val Littlefield, and, and Val was on this show uh, very oh, early. Uh, oh, yes, yeah, she spoke of uh, her uh, knowledge of the genes teachers. And in yes. fact, I posted that the link so that people could listen to that show to understand the role that the genes teachers played, and we talked about the Rosenwald schools and what have you. I mean, it's just putting everything in the context. You you look on the census and you see that your ancestors are listed in school, and then you wonder, well, who were the teachers? And some people are not aware of the fact that those genes teachers were there. Sorry about that. Can you hear me now? I, I can. What happened? Did I do something? No, I think I did something. I said oh, you okay, work okay. with lots of young historians. Where do you see the future of Southern history, African American history, and South uh, Carolina history going? Well, I think it's an interesting question. I'm very excited about the the new work coming out on Reconstruction, which deals with all of that uh, in in many ways. Uh, I think we really do need uh, more African Americans to do Southern history. Uh, And in fact, uh, for many years, the Southern History Association, John Hope Franklin, a lot of African American historians have now sort of migrated much more into uh, the African American uh, Association of Study of Life in History, and I do think we need to bring those back together. You know, my own interpretation is very strongly that it is the interaction of blacks and whites that makes the South unique, and that makes Southern history different. So I think that is very important. Uh, I always encourage my students, both my PhD students uh, who I taught at the University of Illinois, that they should always follow their heart because this is something you're going to spend a lot of time with and you want to enjoy it, and it's going to be discouraging at times as you're tracing down um, leads and things. So I really think that people need to follow their hearts in understanding uh, history. 
I have argued, you know, most people have, have said that Reconstruction uh, could not have worked. I have argued just the opposite in the age of Lincoln, that in fact it was because it was working that you had the overthrow of and a violent overthrow here in America, a coup d'etat uh, of a legitimately elected interracial government. It was because it was working. They had to turn to violence and intimidation and all of this to overthrow it. So I think that's important for us. Are you there? Yes. Are you still there? Okay. Yes, Thought I, I am. Lost you again. Sorry about that. Oh, okay. no. Okay. Listening. I apologize. At any rate, I think that this is something that we need to look at. When I went to graduate school, <laughs> people argued that there was no way that the Confederacy could have won, that it was inevitable. You know, that had an ironic effect. That sort of made very noble the uh, Confederate soldier, because if you're fighting against all odds anyway, what does it say? Well, then we had a little war called Vietnam where we learned that an under-resourced nation could, in fact, uh, win in a war if they were dedicated enough. And now everybody talks about contingency. That is that uh, the Confederacy could have won, and we now know, as I showed in the age of Lincoln, that the Confederacy almost did win several times uh, in the Civil War. But we haven't been willing to grant that contingency to Reconstruction. And I think we really need to, that just because we know how it came out doesn't mean it had to come out that way. There were a lot of contingent moments in Reconstruction, and I believe that, in fact, it was working, that you had grassroots levels democracy throughout different places that you can look at and see that Reconstruction was succeeding, that African Americans were making progress, that whites were accepting, that they had to work within this interracial framework. So I think that would be an important place. I'm sort of saying where people should go. And I hope genealogists will like what I say. I really, I did a local study for my first study. Uh, I never published my dissertation. I did publish one chapter out of it, and that became in my father's house and mini mansion. But I really think that we can go to the local level, what's called microhistory, and there we can see how things really were working, and we can pull together sources to understand story. And then I think our interpretation will grow from those individual stories and, and the complexities and the ambiguities that really is history as opposed to just looking at it from afar. So I think that is a place I would like to think that we can go back to having people look at. And, of course, in this digital world, it's a lot easier to do some of the research than it was before. Yes, you are right. It is a lot easier to do it now. But the whole issue of talking about the community and just exploring the community and doing your community genealogy is, is will really empower people because they will start seeing just the strength of their communities. They will start seeing some of the assets rather than the deficits uh, in the community. If we can I, then – go ahead. Yeah, and I, and I think they'll see the contingencies that things could have been different if people had just stood up here or there. Like, I, I honestly believe that you know it was just it was a small group of white Southerners who overthrew Reconstruction, and the real tragedy is that the great majority did nothing to stop them but sat by and let the rule sort of law, uh, uh, rule of law be overthrown. So that we now then, had to have what was called the second reconstruction of the civil rights movement just to bring us back where we were. Yes, yes. Well, you know, right now, you know, you're talking about the rule of law and you're talking about people just sitting back and allowing things to happen. We do need to have those people speaking out, speaking out and saying, wait a minute, something is wrong here. And if we could just continue that, and you're right, get that grassroots level democracy going, and we will definitely see uh, change in our society and see our society working the way it should be working. Well, Dr. Burton, do you have anything else you'd like to share with us before we move? There is a statement about this fear of black empowerment. Uh, let, let me finish. I never quite finished the the. Texas redistricting, because 
I think it's a good example of where my testimony, my report, uh, was useful and how important it is to understand our history. One of the things I pointed out was starting with the Civil War and then Reconstruction with the 1890s and the movement of the People's Party, the third-party system that challenged and was very much at the grassroots level, electing people where blacks and whites cooperated, when the poll tax was challenged, uh, with the civil rights movement. Every time that there was a perceived threat to the political parties, that they would then enact laws that were directly and purposely, and I showed each of those cases, courts had found them purposeless, whether it was the poll tax or the literacy laws or, or whatever else, or the, or the uh, re-registration laws or the purging laws, uh, that they were discriminatory intent, racially motivated. And so what I did is I took the photo ID law and put it in the context of what was perceived of as another crisis. People in Texas were talking over and over again. They had discovered that Texas had become a majority-minority state. That is, that minorities were the majority, and that was everybody was upset about that, or at least whites were and concerned about it. Secondly, you had President Obama win the Democratic nomination in 2008 and then won, and African Americans came out to vote and registered a higher rate than they ever had. The same thing as 2012, and I tried to put that was their crisis, and just like in every other crisis historically, the state responded by trying to find a way to limit minority voting, and that was the in-person photo voter ID. And they used the very same the very same rationale that they had used since the Civil War. In every instance, they said it was because of voter fraud. They said that about the poll tax. They said that about re-registration. They said that about the literacy uh, uh, laws. And it was the same canard again and again and again. And yet no one could show that there was any in-person voter fraud uh, this in the recent recent times. No matter how much they tried to find it, it was just so, so rare. There was with absentee ballots, but that was almost always with whites using absentees fraudulently. So I think that is a good specific example of how history can go to court and also looking at the long view and not just focusing on the voter ID laws and when it was passed, but looking at the context of restrictive legislation all the way back from the Civil War. Okay. And a comment that's coming out of the chat, you know, are we also seeing the same in today's world? Some things never change. So, Dr. Burton, do you have any closing remarks? Before we end the show tonight No, I'm happy to talk about anything That, that you would like I do want to say that uh, All of this, when we're talking about race And the importance of race in the South I think, you know, race is a national A world problem Or a world issue, it doesn't have to be a problem It can be a wonderful thing uh, But I also think there are other Characteristics that come out of the South That have a more positive Particularly the the uh, the, the Faith-based Sort of worldview of many black and white Southerners uh, is a lot of other things that go into making a region and its characteristics, and that's one that's shared pretty much across uh, cultures. Uh, you know, when I was asked uh, by NPR whether the Confederate flag be taken down in South Carolina for the horrible massacre that we had uh, at Mother Emanuel's church, I said I was not hopeful, and I was proved wrong. But that was before the African-American families of the victims forgave the murderer, Dylan Roof. And for whatever you think of that, what they talked about was grace, like Christ. And I read through the legislative debates, and throughout those debates, you saw that word grace again and again and again. And white legislators who had before opposed taking the flag down, including the governor herself, 
or Senator Lindsey Graham. They came around, and I really believe it was because of that religious conversation about redemption and grace that came out of the culture that shared that brought the flag down uh, in South Carolina. And I'm so glad you're, you're mentioning that because, yes, the family, through all of that pain, they did forgive. And through that forgiveness, others were able to just really understand what this, what was going on, what impact the, uh, the murder, this massacre had on, on the entire country and the sadness. But, yes, they did forgive. But that symbol needed to come down, and they did agree to bring it down. And so with that, Dr. Burton, the show is over. I just want to thank you so very much for for spending the time with us tonight just to have this conversation about history. And I hope that you'll come back and and talk with us again. So everyone, I just will, want Bernice, and I really appreciate what you do to promote history and genealogy. I think it's so important. So thank you for all you do in this wonderful program. I'm honored to thank be a part of. Honored to have you, Dr. Burton. And so everyone else, please remember your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history family records, research at the National Archives and beyond, which means study your history. Now, you can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and the Afrogenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji and also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Soul Smith. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your hosts, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy and Educational Services, LLC, and my website is www.geniebroots.com. And I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Dr. Burton. Good night.